My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Do you remember when we talked about penis fractures here on the show? A listener named Alice wrote in saying she accidentally broke her boyfriend's penis while, quote, going a little too nutso in bed. As we discussed back then, penile fractures, which are really more like ruptures of parts of them, happen, but they're pretty rare. According to the Journal of Sexual Medicine, about 1,043 people are hospitalized because of a penis fracture each year in the U.S., Guess how many people live with the painful penis condition we're going to talk about today? We don't exactly know, but some researchers estimate as many as 23% of penis owners between ages 40 and 70. That's several million people. Even the lower estimates, between 1 and 5%, make it pretty common. And yet, there's a good chance you haven't heard of this condition. I could not have gone into any specifics myself until recently, thanks to today's guest. And the one time I mentioned it in an episode back in 2017, I completely butchered the pronunciation. It's called Peroni's disease, not Pyroweni's disease. And today's guest, Don Cummings, wrote the newly released memoir, Bent But Not Broken, about his experience with it. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin. I'm so thankful that you're listening. Before we dive in, a huge sponsor shout out to The Pleasure Chest, my favorite place to shop for toys, lube, and other sexual health products. Visit one of their locations in New York City, Chicago, or Los Angeles, and check out their free weekly workshops, or start shopping now at thepleasurechest.com. For more Girl Boner fun, sign up for extras by email at augustmclaughlin.com or girlboner.org. About once a month, I share news about upcoming events, lessons I'm learning, sometimes freebies, fun surveys, and more. Also on my site, you can check out my blog and my books, Girl Boner, which released last August, appropriately, and Girl Boner Journal, a fun sexual empowerment workbook full of stories and writing prompts, which you can pre-order to receive next month. Now I'm so pleased to welcome Don Cummings to the show. Don has been published in literary journals and often performs his stories at venues around the country, including Comedy Central's Sit and Spin, HBO Workspace, Brooklyn Reading Works, and True Story. His many plays have been produced and read on both coasts, performed by committed artists, curious interlopers, and Meryl Streep. Don has appeared on TV and in film, but more often on stage. His production company, Pacific Hudson Railroad, produces and develops filmed and recorded entertainment. A graduate of Tufts University with a degree in biology and the Neighborhood Playhouse School of the Theater with an actor certificate, he spends most days writing, playing music, and desiring some kind of peace. And his book, Bent But Not Broken, released by Heliotrope Books, is a must-read. Thank you so much for joining me, Don. Oh, it's such great to be here. Thank you so much, August. It's just fun. On a Sunday in Burbank. Yeah, I mean, that's where everyone needs to be on Sunday morning, or really, I call it morning because it's like, you know, before two (laughs) o'clock. You're you're a night owl, I am. Yes, I'm absolutely a night owl, but um, I had a wonderful breakfast. So, What did you have? I had scrambled eggs, uh, uh, non-chemical bacon. Sorry, Mm -hmm. piggy. It was a real piggy, but uh, there was no chemicals. Um, And an English muffin. Sounds very balanced. It was like my husband's a cook. So I got to eat, you know, I get to eat his food all the time. It's Adam's great. so kind. And yeah, you yeah. wrote about that. It made me drool a little bit. Yeah, it's, I'm very fortunate because I'm not a great cook. I can make um, minestrone soup. I can make some pastas. I can, I can make a few things. I can make meatloaf. I can, and I can fry. That's I good. I used to be a fry cook. I was a fry cook at a truck stop when I was a teenager. So I can like fry anything. But, you know, <laughs> but he's a real cook. I mean, he, he's a good cook. Yeah, what so, a gift. Yeah, it really is a gift. I'm very fortunate. That is yeah. awesome. Mm-hmm. That's so great. I have to say, one thing I really loved about your book, first of all, that you're bringing light to this subject that needs mm-hmm. more light, and also your humor. You have this really wonderful 
sense of humor that it, it's like a little bit dry and a little it's so it made me laugh out loud numerous times, which I think is really important when you're talking about a really serious topic. And then also you have this wonderful frankness when you're talking about sex and gender and penises and your own penis. It it doesn't have any sort of air of like taboo or stigma around it, mm-hmm. which I, I so appreciate. I wonder where that sense of openness comes from. You know, it's funny. Funny. I mean, it definitely comes from my family. My, my, you know, my parents got married very young and they had three children by the time they were, t- my mother was 23. So we were raised in a household where there are these two adults who are young, very much in love, and they're hot for each other. Nothing inappropriate happened in my family. I know a lot of inappropriate things happen in people's families. I was lucky that that did not happen. As I, I've told people, like, the most inappropriate thing is, is my mother vacuumed sometimes in her underwear. <laughs> Top and bottom. Not that. It's like a bikini. Not that. That's the worst thing that ever happened. And it was totally funny and fine, and it was and no problem. We all ran around in our underwear at times. Um, but um, my parents were very smoochy. And they liked they were very romantic, and they dan- mostly like dancing and smooching after dinner. They were very sweet. And my parents were very easygoing about sex, especially my mom. Um, my my mom was not really ahead of her time. She was like right with her time with um, you know the women's movement. She was very involved, and she was very uh, body positive, sex positive. Just it would, back when those terms weren't even used, you know. But she was it was very clear to her. And actually, even my her mother, her grandmother, like. That side of the family, they were very easygoing about sex. My dad was a little more bashful, but he wasn't ashamed at all. That's huge. So I grew up in a household that was really easygoing about it. And also everyone was a bit sciencey. And and so we were able to talk about stuff like straight up, you know, bodies, this, that. And my mom and my sister are both were in the medical field. So that also made them somewhat analytical and easygoing about it. It was just easy. Mm. And there was never any... There was never any issue around it. That's so refreshing. Yeah, yeah. And I'm surprised when I see people they're uptight or this or that. I'm like, and that was not, I mean, I have, everyone has different issues. I mean, I don't have that issue. But um, I'm always surprised that people have to deal with that because it is such a natural, mm-hmm. I mean, especially like think about it when you get to a certain age and you start masturbating or you start doing something with the kid around the corner or something happens. And it's like, it all actually starts out super innocent. It's actually really sweet in the early years. You're like, what is this? What's going on? Oh, I feel different. I, you know, and, and, and it's so natural. It's so natural. So it's like, why are people getting it's like, it's like breathing. It's like eating. It's like it's just part. It, it is a just a function of our bodies. And then, of course, I'm a biology major. I was a pre-medical student. I don't know. I, I, I can. I am not grossed out by anything like, you know, I could watch someone like cut open a cadaver while I ate lunch. For whatever reason, I'm one of those guys that doesn't bother me. Which made you a great person to write this book and cover this topic because so many people do have shame around it, which is why I think Mm -hmm. the estimates about how many people, some people are too embarrassed to talk to a doctor even. Oh, I mean, I've had, I mean, since I've written this book, I have had, it's interesting, it's, it's a weird bicoastal thing. In New York... It's women who come up to me and tell me, my boyfriend has this, my bo- my husband has this. Oh, last year this happened. And, and it's like, it's rife. And then here, though, in L.A., for some reason, it's the men. I don't, you know, huh. for whatever. I mean, I think it's just by chance. But yeah. I'll be at a party and a guy will come up to me, a friend, and he'll say, like, you know, I went to see a doctor and I have this. Or I don't, you know. Um, so it's, I mean, just in my circle, just mm-hmm. in my social circle of, you know, of the nine million people I don't know, just my social circle <laughs> of the people I know in New York and L.A., um, it, it's it's really common right there. Yeah. So I mean, it's like it's kind of everywhere, and I, and I am surprised that, you know, as you mentioned in your intro, I'm like, it's amazing that people haven't talked about it that much. Mm-hmm. Other people, I mean, there are, as you know, there are ads on TV now for it. Uh, there's a new drug that has been, uh, you know, allowed by the FDA to be used. That wasn't around when I was getting treated, but um, so there's just there's more drugs. Look, once the pharmaceutical companies start to make, you know, can they start making money? They can, you know, right. jump in there. I mean, look at Viagra. Everybody in the entire world knows about it because, you know, yeah. every show has a commercial completely. Yeah. 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 And certainly once you start a conversation, the stories roll in. And before we get to the specifics of, of what the condition is and entails and, and your experience, I'm curious, too, about, again, how candid you were about talking about not only your experience as an adult with a condition mm-hmm. affecting the penis, but you talked about childhood memories, about that innocent curiosity. Mm-hmm. And 
sadly, I hear from so like if you have a vulva and a clitoris and vagina and all that, it's not only more hidden physically, mm-hmm. but it's hidden from us emotionally in a lot of ways because people say never go there. It's, you know, I hear that from so many people. I learned that too. And so a lot of times our innocent curiosity and and some, you know, in some cases, I think if you have a penis too, you may have learned like if you were in like a deeply religious family or something, mm-hmm. but to, to read about you and like your peers and that it was just like this normal thing. Mm-hmm. Why was it important for you to talk about the childhood memories involving genitalia. Yeah, I mean, I wanted, I wanted to really show, you know, I'm full blown middle aged, and and um, I wanted to show loss, and I thought the only way you could show loss, like like you know, I'm obviously a writer, so you know, show don't tell kind of thing. Like I could have written a very big purple you know, sentence that said, I was really, really upset and, and my, you know, my penis and, and you can't imagine how upset I was, you know. Um, you know, something even more articulate than that, of course. But um, to, to really talk about what it was and what it is, I wanted to talk about loss because penis or whatever, you know, as you age, there is some loss. I mean, look, just simple things like, okay, let's say, you know, you need reading glasses all of a sudden. This is common. This is not such a big deal. But if someone really wanted to write a book about their eyesight, you know, got you know, you you would talk about, you know, oh, when I saw things clearly, let's say, yeah. or let's say someone who's going blind, which is much more tragic, of course, you know. So I, I wanted I wanted to really present um, what it was like, and specifically what it was like for me, because I happen to be someone who. Um, when I was younger, and, you know, I, I consider myself an attractive enough middle-aged guy, but when I was younger, I was, you know, I was definitely like kind of a hot guy, you know what I mean? And so I could have a lot of sex, and I did, and I really enjoyed it. And I Shamelessly, really, which was shame, really fun to read shameless about. Shameless sex. Yeah. I sh- safe? Safe? Sh- you know. Safe and shameless. Yeah, I was very, um, uh, you know, careful. You know, I'm, I'm of the age where I could have easily, you know, I did not contract uh, HIV, um, but it was because I knew about it before I was really, really active, you know. Um, So, yeah, sort of safely but shamelessly because, I mean, I had a very, I mean, I still have a a medium strong sexual drive, but when I was younger, it was like, you know, and a lot of guys are this way. I'm not unique in this experience, but it was like every day, you know, like once a day, sometimes twice was about the right amount, you know, the right combo for me. Um, So It's a huge part of your identity. It seemed like... You know, and it's it's an ind- individual thing, but I think so many of us can relate to that desire and what it means to us. Yeah. And there was that sense of loss because it seemed very robust and this adventure for you and mm-hmm. and a part of your self-confidence, like a, an important part. Yeah, because, I mean, I was, you know, I'm a creative person and, and, and if, whether you are whatever, everyone in life deals with rejection. But my the rejection that I've dealt with in my life was outsized because I was an you know an actor. I still act occasionally when friends ask, but I don't really do that much anymore. But um, I'll, I'll do it if forced. But um, but there was so much rejection, you know. And I think I did use. I mean, in a positive way, it was positive. But I think I also used it like some people use things. They go eat a chocolate cake. Like I definitely was like, oh, you know, Ole Miz. They wanted a Byron esque dude, and I got typed out. So I know I'm gonna go have some sex. You know, you know, you want you want to see some Byron esque? Here we go. You yeah, know? you talked about at some point yeah. that it was it's like the least expensive way to have this incredible pleasure. I yeah, mean, that's not word yeah. for word, but yeah, that's exactly right. It's just it's it's cheap. Yeah, you know, it's like maybe the cost of a subway ride, or you know, in New York, or or, or nothing, or nothing, or yeah. absolutely nothing. I wish we'd learned that in sex. Like yeah. if someone even just said pleasure's okay. <laughs> You know that masturbation and yeah. and that kind of pleasure and again safety is important, but uh-huh. but even with your own self, you know, and and true too. I do think it's partly the time I grew up in. I was I graduated high school in 1980, so it was the late 70s, and it just, I mean, it was a free for all. There was also that going on. So there there was this, you know, when when Ronald Reagan became president. The world snapped back to a different era, and I was horrified by it. I was in my first year of college, and I was like, what the fuck? You know, am, am I allowed to curse on this show? Yeah. What the fuck is going on, you know? Um, I was just like, this doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, th- this is – my whole life was was all about 
you know, things becoming more democratic, things becoming more open, things becoming more honest, people, you know, do your own thing, feel good. You know, you don't want to go too far with that. You don't want to become a drug addict. You don't want to um, let go of responsibility, you know. And certainly my family, no one did that. My parents were very responsible people. Uh, and all the kids are in suburbia, New York. People were responsible. It was fine. But there was this feeling of you know, let your freak flag fly, enjoy your pleasure, really, you know, everyone's playing guitars around the pond, you know, and and now it's a cliche, and now, you know, and like, you, you watch a movie about the era now, and they kind of make fun of it, but, but you understand, like, it was an, it was a truthful thing that was happening, and I grew up in that Petri dish, and that, that cultural Petri dish, and, and, and then it changed, and then, you know, and AIDS came along, and I think AIDS was huge, um, you know, of course, I, I think, I think, I think AIDS was huge. So it is. Really? I mean, my goodness. Well, thank, <laughs> thank God, you know, Don Cummings has told you AIDS is huge. Um, no, but it, you know, when once AIDS came around, um, things changed so much. And, yeah. and I would say the combination of AIDS and Ronald Reagan sure. sort of just slapped the door shut on a lot of pleasure for a lot of people. Absolutely, abstinence-based yeah. education became. Mm the thing. It was more the just say no. And I remember hearing, I was mm-hmm. really little mm-hmm. uh, when I first heard about HIV and AIDS. And I remember hearing that it was like punishment for gay people. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. terrible. Yeah. And and that the only way to prevent it is abstinence and just, and those messages still linger. It's it's crazy. Oh, and, and there were and there were gay men who did that. You know, my, my husband, um, he he knew he was gay, but he did not come out until he was twenty eight. And uh, hi Adam. Um, he, hey uh, Adam. <laughs> hi honey. <laughs> um, he uh, yeah. I mean, he was scared. He was. I mean, he was had other issues going on. Like he was thinking maybe he would be straight, but you know. But but the bigger issue, I think he was scared. Yeah. And a lot of guys were that way. It was like it was felt like this was could be a death sentence. It's hard not to absorb that. That messaging. And then there mm. is, I mean, there is a real risk, of course. Right. Um, but the way that it had been presented, especially before much was known about it, but even once mm. it was, the context was really shaming, I think. Yeah. 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 So you were with Adam when you started to experience and notice symptoms of Peroni's disease. Yeah. Uh, Share what the initial symptoms to you were. When did you start to think that that's what it was? Oh, you know, I... I start my, you know, men often have erections when they're sleeping, um, not the whole night, but and I think it it does also even connect to part of the sleep cycle, but I'm I don't I forget which one, but um, and especially if you have to urinate, a man will get an erection which will hold the urine better or something. I don't know, but um, I started noticing that at night, like I'd wake up in the middle of the night and my erections just hurt, like a hurt that was like. What was the pain like? It was like somewhat burning and constricting and like sore. Sounds like a bladder infection almost. Yeah, yeah. It was but but it but it wasn't in the urethra, it was in the tissue. Mm. So it felt like what would it be like? Like like if you overworked out something, maybe? I don't know. It was like really sore and tender and it didn't feel right. And that was gone for a bit. And I go, what is this? And I thought, oh, it's just some pain and 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 sometimes in life it is best to ignore pains they go away you know it's like ah maybe i did something and and then and then a few weeks in i noticed that my penis at the top started bending to the right and then i was like and because i do have a a background in knowing about diseases and things because of my degree or this or that or being interested uh, i knew i had peroni's disease so you already completely knew what that was. I saw it and I was like, oh, fuck, I have Peroni's disease. Really? And I, as I said, like, there's two things in life I never wanted. It was like, oh, Peroni's disease or toenail fungus. And I got both. You really? Know? Toenail fungus is cleared up. Um, <laughs> and I have a great remedy for that on your when you start the fu- toenail fungus show. Um, but, but, uh, <laughs> I'll keep that in but, mind. Keep it in mind. Um, yeah, I have, a, I have a great way finally. And then, um, and then, yeah, I got Peroni's disease. And it was just like, I don't know, it's something I always thought like would be a horrible thing to have. And then I got it. And, mm-hmm. and I'm not religious, but I started thinking... Is this like a clue of some sort of, you know, reincarnation, like or knowing is there a is there a knowing and like I've already lived this life and somehow it's being telegraphed back I mean it like sounds subconsciously new yeah, or something. Like, yeah, I don't know. I mean and I again, I mean we can all build causalities around right, how things work on the planet. I have no idea really how they work. But um sometimes the thing you really re- wish you never would get, you get. 
Yeah. And that happens too in life. And for some reason, I, I wasn't obsessed. Believe me. I wasn't walking around every day thinking like, you know, oh, I'm going to get Peroni's disease. It was just like definitely on my list of things I never wanted. And did you know <laughs> a lot about it other than it being – because bent and pain You're right. are the two like main symptoms. Did you have a sense of, oh, this is treatable, not treatable, that kind of stuff? I didn't know. No, that part I didn't know. So that that was, you know, um, and, I, and I write about it in, in, in the book. Um you know, I didn't know, and I and I didn't know exactly what caused it. I didn't know how this happened. I I figured, um, I figured it had something to do with inflammation. You know, but I I no, I I, I the doctor kind of clued me in yeah. as to, you know, the very specifics of of how this happens to you. I remember when I was reading your book from the time that you noticed the symptoms. You didn't go in immediately. But I think, was it within like two months or something? Two months, yeah. And when I saw that, I thought, oh, I don't know if I, like, how could you wait two months? And then you went in and the doctor said, it's so good you came in so quickly. Yeah. Because typically it takes a much longer time. Yeah. As the doctor said, he said, he said, gay men um, come, he said, gay men come who have Peroni's disease come in sooner than straight men because gay men are more identified with their penises. Um, yeah, yeah, guys will wait for a really long time. They'll, as a matter of fact, they'll wait so long that, that it can't be treated. Because what happens with the scar tissue, so for, for you know, how, how it works is there's some sort of, there's some sort of injury, maybe it's just repeated small, it might be the way you have sex, you might hit the same spot over and over again. I think that's, in my theory, that's more what it's like. Like, oh, I'm, I'm just doing this certain way, and it's kind of just hitting that spot, and it's like just getting messed up. You know, some people do like you talk about, you know, penis fracture, but but there could be uh, something where you, you, you have a really h- harsh sex night and you can get like hurt, maybe not a full fracture, but hurt. You know, I don't think that happened to me. I think mine might have been from more repetitive motion. But what happens is you get scar tissue just like you would get scar tissue from anything. And then it 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 sandwiches there between your erectile tubes, the corpora cavernosa. And the outer layer, which is called the tunica albuginea, which is like um, it's a reptilian system, like reptilian plates. You know how like so so snakes can molt because their plates can go, you know, go up and down. And um, it's kind of cool. So you have this like snake like thing going on in there. And anyway, the the scar tissue is in there Mm. and then and then it can calcify. So if scar tissue calcifies, it's much more difficult to treat. Mm. So that's why I said if you get Peroni's disease, get it taken care of, you know, ASAP. So, because they, yeah. while, while, the, while it's still soft, while the scar tissue is still soft, they can treat it and kind of open it up, you know, get it, get it more pliable, turn it from, you know, cheddar to Swiss, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and the treatment process is very interesting. It sounds like there's not like a one size fits all treatment, right? No, no. And you went through multiple different forms. Mm-hmm. The first one, talk about that. I believe it involved the injections. Yeah. So, in 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 my case, so so Zyaflex, I think it's pronounced Zyaflex, 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 XIA. Um, it was not approved by the FDA yet, so I, that was not available to me. And that is what they're using these days. Um, but I was treated with something called verapamil. Verapamil is actually a blood pressure medication. It was not made for Peroni's disease, but someone figured out that if you mix verapamil with saline, put it in a needle, go under the skin of the penis, because the scar tissue is quite close to the top, you know, go in there and just kind of break break up that scar tissue with this needle, saline, and verapamil. And they first, obviously, numb you, you know, with lidocaine. And the, and the first shot, you know, they give you the base of the penis. They numb you. And then they go in there with the needle um, once you're numb and they kind of like they'll go in there and kind of do 30 or 40 bangs with this needle with the verapamil and the saline. Like they go and they they only it's interesting. They go in just one hole in your penis. And my my plaque was toward the top, toward the end, toward my penis head. And they go in toward the you know, August to see me. I'm like using my finger as a visual. <laughs> you know, helpful. here's my here's my finger here's the visual. So they go in with the needle and then just in one place, and then they kind of just move it in many directions. Because once you get under the penis skin, it's kind of open up in there, you know, and you can just kind of go. So they so they just stab around and just keep squirting, stabbing, squirting, stabbing, and break it up. And you were watching, I imagine. I think I would have to look away myself. I don't um, know. The way they have you sit, I wasn't exactly watching. Let me see. Yeah, sometimes I peeked. But, it, you know, 
you know, I did watch when when I had all four of my wisdom teeth pulled out. I watched that with a mirror. That I watched. Uh, by wow. by the third tooth, I got a, I got a little woozy, and I, I even I couldn't handle that. I put it down, but um, but it actually wasn't that freakish to watch because there wasn't anything much. Go- There's a needle there. I don't know, and it was just kind of really. It was longer than I thought. Like like those treatments would take about fifteen minutes. You know what yeah. I mean? That's a long time to just sort of be sitting there having someone you know stabbing around in there. Maybe. Maybe it was 10 minutes, but felt like 15, you know, whatever. Yeah, and then you were bandaged up and you'd have bruising and all that. Was it a painful recovery process in between? Yeah, well, so I went every two weeks. Um, The mm, It was bruised looking because if you go into the skin and do something like this, you get bruised. But it didn't really hurt that much, honestly. That's good. It really didn't. I mean, it was, a matter of fact, I, I was so relieved I was getting the treatments that that once the lidocaine wore off and the numbing wore off about two hours later when I was at home, like, yeah, it felt, <laughs> it felt like someone was in there and stabbing around my penis. But but it's a small-gauge needle. It's not like they're in there with a hacksaw, you know. So, um, But what I liked was after each treatment, very much, you feel looser. You feel that you have been released some. And the more than anything, the psychological relief of like, oh, my penis is hanging better. Oh, it's mm. it's not being pulled up to my body like it was, you know, from the scar tissue. Oh, this feels better. That totally outshined the soreness, which was minor, honestly. That's so good because I feel yeah. like the pain or prospect of pain would keep mm-hmm. some people from feeling comfortable getting the treatment. So I think that's right. really good to know. Yeah. Talk about the andropenis because that was yeah. really fascinating to me, this stretching of the penis, essentially. Sure, sure. I mean, there are many companies. My doctor recommended, you know, he recommended the andropenis because um, he said it worked well. I still have it. And I actually still use it one hour a day as I read The New Yorker in the morning. Um, uh, it's it's basically this crazy thing where at the base is like a donut, a plastic donut thing. Again, I'm doing the, doing, doing the hands. Plastic donut thing. And then these two extender rods that are on, they're on spring action. And you can add these little half centimeter discs to the um, to these rods to make them longer and longer over time. But you start with no longer than how your penis is erect at that time, because prone disease does shorten your erection some, so or almost always. So, so you start at that distance, and you put it on. And what it does, it's like it's basically like a traction device. So it's pulling your penis in a straightforward motion so it's not leaning to the right or the left or up towards your belly. And so you you start for a couple of weeks just regular. You don't even feel it. And then after two weeks, you add a half a centimeter. And then you do that for a couple of weeks and you add a half a centimeter. Now in the early, I mean, you if you can wear the thing eight hours a day, it's almost impossible to do that. You just, life's too difficult to do that. But in the early part, I was wearing it like six hours a day. I do three hours in the morning and three hours at night. Watch, I did it. I was so diligent because, you know, it really helps and it really works. And and what you're doing is you're stretching the scar tissue. Mm-hmm. Is really what's mostly happening. And um, uh, and again, you'd wear it and you definitely felt looser and better. You know, once once you had your tr- your daily treatment. You know, yeah. but it's quite a commitment. I have to say, most guys I talk to who they get some, you know, Andrew Penis or another brand penis stretcher. Like, I've talked to guys who are just like, oh, God, I, I just, how do you have the time? What do you do? And I was like, you know, I didn't have an, I don't have a normal job. I'm a freelance guy. Uh, I had the time and also the, you know, complete and utter motivation. The will and determination. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, the the protocol works, so why not do it? You're and again, treat it. Treat look, it. look at people who have, you know, people who have cystic fibrosis who have to, who have to clear their lungs. It is such an effort. It takes, they've been doing this since forever, since they were children, going to a respiratory therapist, going, and like, I, my heart goes out to people who have to do something that takes up hours of their life in order just to get to what is perceived as normal. You know? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I feel like we have to mention, I'm assuming at least, that this is not something that you would use purely for aesthetic reasons. I know a lot of people have self-consciousness around penis size. Uh, you wouldn't just use it to stretch out the size well, of your penis without Peroni's disease. Well, they, they do market it for, there is something, I don't know what, you know, there's a clinical thing called the mi- a micropenis, which is, 
I think is like a penis that's less than three inches when erect. Yeah, we is, did an episode. You did about well, we uh, did an episode on the smallest penis pageant. Okay. And I interviewed somebody who was a contestant, and he was talking about. We didn't go in depth, but yeah, uh-huh. there's the micro penis, which is smaller than. And it was interesting because uh-huh. one of the things that came up in the interview and in the mm-hmm. research for it was that a lot of people think that they have a small penis when it's pretty average. Right. You know, right. there's just a lot of pressure to. To the bigger, be bigger is better and, and yeah. all that stuff. Much more from men, I think. Uh, I don't uh-huh. I don't really know many women who have a big thing about it has to be a certain number of inches. You know what I mean? Right, like that's right. if, if they're attracted to, to penis people. But I think um, it's interesting just how how much people are motivated or, or have their sense of self in well, size. No, no, that's definitely true. I mean, I mean, I uh, and I say it in the book, it's like no big secret. I, mean, I have an average six inch penis. Like it's and and they they studies are like five and a half to six inches is like the average erect, you know. Um, and of course, they all look different when they're not erect. Um, so they do market these stretchers for people who have small penises to lengthen them and say that you know they're going to gain maybe an inch and a half or two or something. You know, I have to say, like, I've used this penis a lot. What it did for me was just kind of brought me back to, you know, close to what I was. What you were normal. Yeah, very close to. I'm not exactly the same, but it's close. And, um, you know, so, but I do think, yes, some people will do it to stretch if they have a micropenis. I think, although a guy, I don't think most guys who have, like, an average penis will... I've not heard of this anyway. That's some guy with an average penis like, I want eight inches, you know, so I'm going to go out there and get a penis stretcher and stretch this bad boy until he's eight inches. And it's like, I don't know how many hours a day you'd have to wear that thing to get that much extension. I just right. don't know. I mean, It starts to sound like the uh, binding of feet at that point. Yeah, you know what some guys do, and this is really, I've heard of this, that there are guys who get into penis pumping with pumps. And with pumps, you can actually grow your penis, actually you can, really big. But it actually destroys the erectile tissue. So you'll end up having, and I do not pump, you know, it's like, I mean, sometimes you need to pump a little bit for, some people use it for Peyronie's disease, but uh, that wasn't what I did, but um, I did a little bit, but it wasn't really necessary for me. Uh, but guys will get into this pumping craze, and they'll end up having these monster penises when they're flaccid, but they don't ever really get erect again. So it's like it's like it's really self mutilation. Oh, so you have really this weird sad. psychological need to present flaccid in this like big you know beer can kind of way, and then like and then your penis doesn't work, and then you don't have the pleasure anymore. Yeah, no, that's, no, it's weird. It's really sad to me that there is that kind of pressure on people to. To have a certain size or it's kind of the ultimate insult you can give someone Yeah, well, make fun of their penis. I mean, I, I mentioned this in the book too. I mean, when I was 12 years old, I started fooling around with a kid around the corner who was also 12 years old. And it was just like kid stuff, you know. But he was like – I was – I don't – at 12 years old, I actually barely had pubic hair. I mean, I was just – I got kind of – I was like 13 or 14 before things started really growing up for me in that area. And he was already, you know – different rate. So he already had this, he had this big penis. He actually has a big penis by adult standards, not even just by a 12 year old standard. So I was like immediately like, oh, I have this tiny penis. Well, I was a kid. Like, it just was like a weird phenomenon that happened. So I definitely, definitely when I was younger felt like I, you know, had a small penis, but then because I'm gay and I've had a lot of sex with men, I realized, okay, I'm like, you know, I'm definitely not huge, but I'm nothing to be embarrassed about. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, so you're able to see that. That's another yeah. benefit from having money and partners. That's what, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's what I do. It's like a uh, variety. And you're yeah, like, you yeah. Know, there are so many shapes and sizes of all. Yeah. <laughs> all well, and also too, in so many different kinds of pleasure. Yeah. Like you can have, right? You can have sex with someone that's just so long and slow and. Lots of just kissing and even taking breaks. You know, my husband would kill. It's like I would. I mean, my husband would rather die than have like an hour and a half session of slow. He'd just be like, "What time is it? Can we <laughs> snap? Snap! I got to cook. I got a garden. I have things yeah. to do. I have to go to work for God's sake." <laughs> you know, so that is not his thing. But I've known guys like they just like to be like this long, slow, sensual thing so you'd see in a. And I can't. I'm more, probably more like Adam. Yeah, I'm like, like, can like, I run laps can for we a second? Please, <laughs> can we just <laughs> yeah. stop? You know, no, no. I don't think that that would have been good for me in my life forever. Mm-hmm. But it's an interesting other way to have sex. Like this, like, you know, elbows and knees and, and you know, like just <laughs> cover it all, you know, just like, yeah. oh, that's going after a while. And I guess, though, I mean, think about it, though, like like if if you keep getting like a certain spot rubbed, like a knee, let's say someone's like knee crazy. 
I mean, that would just get boring after a while, right? Right. That that it would probably numb out. That's true. If you stay yeah. in one spot, I mean, yeah, there's yeah. something to be said for Moving long, around. slow arousal does make more full body arousal, which sure. is cool. Yeah. But it's also kind of aggravating because you're like, I really need to sneeze. Like, I yeah. really need to orgasm. You know, it's like, yeah, a, like can we just get please. to it? Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 It's kind of finding that happy medium or whatever works for you. And variety yeah. is cool, too. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Uh, we have an interesting question that ties into your topic a little bit uh, as far as both sexual pain and also dealing with emotions around like vulnerable feelings of anxiety with a partner and that kind of thing. It comes from a listener named Rita who wrote this. Last year, I was diagnosed with interstitial cystitis, which my doctor thinks resulted from an injury that happened in a car accident. I take medication, which which helps, and have benefited from pelvic physical therapy. My symptoms are much better, but I'm still very anxious and only rarely desire sex as a result. It has been such a blow to my self-confidence before all of this, My husband and I had a wonderful sex life, and I can't help but feel like I'm letting him down. My body seems better, so why hasn't my brain or libido caught up? Any recommendations would be greatly appreciated. Rita, thank you so much for your question. I think you're going to help a lot of people with it. Here's what Dr. Megan Fleming of GreatLifeGreatSex.com had to say. Rita, thank you so much for your question. And I am so glad to hear that you have significant relief in your symptoms of interstitial cystitis and that you found your way into the hands of the right doctor and pelvic floor physical therapist so that you have such significant relief. And for anybody listening who may or may not be familiar, uh, interstitial cystitis is a chronic bladder health issue that is predominantly characterized by feelings of pain and pressure on the bladder, which leads to sort of the symptoms of both frequency, increased frequency, and a feeling of urgency. And, and for some women, certainly can contribute to, to vaginal pain. And I want to just sort of highlight that this is not at all uncommon. One to four million men and three to eight million women experience IC. And the important thing here is it can range the symptoms from mild to severe, and they can come and go, or for some that they can be chronic. So like yourself, I just want people to recognize it can be a combination of medical uh, medication um, or procedures and or the pelvic floor physical therapy, that there are many things that can be done. So certainly no one should ever suffer in silence. Um, But coming back to your specific question, you know, it's interesting how the mind-body works, right? That even though you're feeling so much physical relief, the mind is still in anticipation. Um, And so what you're describing in terms of loss of sexual desire, first of all, I want to say how common that is, right? It's really difficult to want or desire that which is going to feel uncomfortable or painful. Um, But I also hear you say that you're concerned about the impact that it's having on your relationship. And so first of all, I want to say, you know, and it's it really it seems like it's had a huge impact on your sense of self-confidence and self-esteem. So first, I want to say we are not um, sort of identifying your value and who you are and what you offer in your relationship. Your sexuality is a piece of that. Um, and yet it's to remind yourself of all the different ways in which um, how you show up for your partner and how we can give pleasure and not just in and out of the bedroom specifically. Um And also that can be helpful as well as when you realize that you have your hands, you have your mouth, all the different ways you can give your partner pleasure. Because you know what? There are going to be some times where you're going to be more uncomfortable. And penetration really, I think, for that moment or that day or even sometimes for weeks might be off the table. And this is something you really want to have an open conversation around with your partner and just letting them know when it feels like an interval of time where you're not having comfortable penetration all the other ways that you can give each other pleasure. But then coming back to it, so how do we extinguish? Basically, this comes back to sort of learning theory, like your body is in anticipation of the pain or discomfort, even when it's not happening. And so this is where, um, from a behavioral perspective, we talk about what we call systematic desensitization. And so that's really where, how do we extinguish the response and so that your body is no longer in anticipation. And that's where exercises like sensate focus come in. And that's the sex therapy exercise where we go back to sort of central touching where initially we're not including um, breasts or genitals. So that the idea is that the body Again, if our biggest sex organ is our brain, our biggest organ, I often say, is our skin. So head to toe, it's reacquainting yourselves with all the different ways of giving yourself pleasure. And in time, when you pair 
if you if there's an anxious response where it could be your heart rate goes up or it could be a feeling in your stomach that over time because you know it's not going to happen and initially again penetration's off the table your body learns to relax and when there's no longer the association or experience of pain paired with pleasure in time the pain response is going to get extinguished and so we sort of you, you can do this on your own, or if you're struggling, certainly go and follow up with a sex therapist. And as always, I recommend the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. But they can help you develop what we call sort of a hierarchy of looking at um, situations where you might have a little bit of anxiety to, again, penetration might be, if you're ranking it zero to 100, penetration might be an 80 or 90 on your anxiety or discomfort scale. And, you know, maybe just kissing might be at a 10 or a 20. And so a therapist would work with you and create that hierarchy so that you can engage in an experience where it raises a little bit of anxiety, you pair that with the relaxation response, as I said, and in time, your body learns that there's no longer the association and that you can get back to the foundation of arousal, which is relaxation. So I know I said a lot and hopefully I didn't overwhelm you, but I just want you to know that you've already come a long way. That's fantastic. This is just the last, um, you know, one of the last hurdles and that there definitely is hope and help. So as always, would love to hear how it goes. I love what she said about there being many ways to experience pleasure, as you had just mentioned too, and even taking penetration off the table, that you can still have a lot of pleasure in other ways. And also the whole idea of systemic desensitization, so your body's not anticipating, because um, anticipating the problem, like anticipating the symptoms can, can get in the way for sure. I'm curious, in your experience, Don, I remember reading in your book about your concerns over your partner's sense of loss. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How impactful was that on your own psyche? Yeah, that was the most difficult part, actually. Um, you know, I, let's see. So, so, so it's a double thing going on, right? It's just me and there's him. So there's his reaction and there's my reaction. My reaction is I'm feeling like I'm depleted. I have less. I'm not who I was, um, I'm less attractive now, and I'm less valuable in bed. I mean, really, it was that simple. It was that mercenary. And then for, for Adam, you know, his loss was like, you know, and Adam likes me, you know, I'm more of the top, you know, in the gay parlance here. And um, actually, in the straight parlance, are top and bottom. Anyway, you know, I'm more... Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, yeah. So, so I'm more the top. So he, you know, so that was off the table for a little while, while I was being treated. And I would say... That was off the table for around nine months, you know, maybe nine or ten months. Um, and we didn't know if it was – I mean, it's, it's back. But we didn't know if it was coming back. And it led to a lot of problems. Um, uh, it brought up – it ended up bringing up other issues. But, but getting back more specifically to what you were asking, I mean, I mean psychologically and, you know, my, my mood was brought way down. And I was I was very upset. I was I am not a depressive in general in life. If 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 I had to like say I was I was more one or the other between depression and anxious, I would say I'm more of a kind of anxious go get him kind of guy. Um, so I wasn't depressed, but I was actively miserable. Mm. I was like an I was an actively miserable person, which maybe saved me from clinical depression. But I just kind of hated living. I did. I did. I felt like oh. Oh, why bother? You know, I'd, I'd look at, you know, marble tile in my bathroom and go, like, I just want to become part of the wall. All right. I'm not suicidal. I wouldn't do anything crazy. You know, I would look at the knives in the kitchen and just say, hack this thing. Just hack this dick off. Just hack it off. It's over. Let's get rid of it. And that was more of a joke. I would, you know, but, but, you know, bad joke. But um, I felt, uh, I felt that I was going through a transition. I didn't know how it was going to end. And I started thinking we're, we're heading for the worst here, you know. And for Adam, he stayed in there with me. But you know how in a relationship, like, you'll be saying one thing on the outside, but inside you're doing something else? Well, that's what he did. So he was, he was very supportive. But internally he started pulling away from me. He did. And, um, and we actually did get into an almost breaking up situation. Um, he brought up other issues outside of the Peroni's disease and he 
and he used those more as a breakup tactic. Uh, also, his father died during this, so he was having his own mortality things. He had a lot going on. Um, career-wise, he was doing fine, but but personally, you know, his sex life wasn't doing that well. He was always he's always been a little unhappy with like my my lack of income. My income's always been kind of up and down, and he's he's definitely like a go get him money kind of guy. Um, and his father died, so he's dealing with his own mortality. So we did get to a point of possibly breaking up, and and I, I you know, took a sort of balance sheet look at my life, and I figured, well, if this happens, and we break up, you know, I will, um, I'll carry on. My penis will get my. And actually, when we got close to the breaking up thing, my penis was in in a better shape. So it was almost like. You know, in that TV show, uh, Six Feet Under, when Frances Conroy finally finally dumps her boyfriend at Park La Brea in the apartments. Anyway, it was that kind of thing. It's like, well, finally get your get your get your mate to a point. Let's say get your alcohol if it's an alcoholic mate or get your so and so to a point where they can function at least. And then you feel not so guilty that you dumped them in the studio apartment, you know, somewhere in Pacoima. Cause, cause they're gonna be okay. You don't have to feel so guilty, and that's where he waited. He waited till I was about three quarters done with this, and he and it was rough. Mm-hmm. And he'll admit it, and it wasn't very nice on his part. And he did say, "I be, I feel terribly guilty breaking out with you because you have Peyronie's disease." But then, you know, we we had gotten to in our own relationship points in the past before all this happened, where we come to like breakup points, you know, where it was like, I hate you, I hate you, you don't touch me, you don't love me, I don't know, what's wrong with you, why don't you close the cabinet, you know, why don't you make more money, why don't you do this, why don't you do that, and it's that that all resentful shit that happens in relationships. So it was like the same old shit kind of piled up, you know, at this time again Came too. Came to four, like yeah, everything kind of same, together. Same, it was like broken record thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how I diffuse it was like, listen, you know, this is it. This is this is the thing. This is our relationship problem that that repeats itself, and you know. And I and I looked at him, and he had just he had had a few years before that he had a horrible uh, skin cancer on his face, and he lost like half his nose, and they had to redo it, and it was just like. Listen, dude. <laughs> you know, it's like you I know, was th- there for think, you. Well, and also when yeah. things are going to happen to us. Yeah, yeah. As you get older, things are going to happen. Like you hang in there. Yeah. Or, or like what? You know, someone's gonna. Something else, you know what? Something else is going to happen. This isn't it. It's life. Something else is going to happen, and you don't wish it on anyone. But let's be realistic here. Yeah. I mean, look at you. Look at your parents. Look at anyone who's you know older than you. Look at people who are younger than you. <laughs> you know, things happen. Right. Right. Yeah. So that's the nature of, of relationships. Yeah. We go through so. hard times, and you you pulled through, and actually got officially married after that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which is really awesome. We did, yeah. I, I imagine with Peroni's disease contributing to that whole kind of volcano of things yeah. that a, a big part of it must have been the the emotional impact on you, mm-hmm. you know, not just the changes in sex, but also it's I think it's challenging to mm-hmm. to also go through the emotional lows with a person. Yeah, I mean, are you talking more him or about more about me? I guess between both of you, because yeah, I feel like yeah. it, there's almost like there's the physical part of Peroni's disease, yeah. and then the emotional part is like a whole other illness almost, not illness, but it's yes. it's this whole other set of symptoms. Yeah, and depending on how your psyche is formed, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I mean for me, I definitely, definitely um, identified with being sexual and being attractive and and knowing that I could go to a convention in a hotel and someone would like me and we go hook up, you know, I liked all that. Uh, and I, so that is loss. And then I felt, yeah, I felt, I just felt just a general bad about myself. Like I just was not, I was just not going to be as desired, you know. And I think also, look, I was an actor. I mean, obviously I was someone who, like to be watched and listened to and you know I'm not I'm not so even proud of that stuff but definitely I'm someone for whatever reason who enjoyed attention got attention enjoyed attention and I was really upset that that was I perceived that that was going away and and it did and truthfully it did go away so I was very very um again like I said I was I was 
actively miserable. And were you getting any sort of emotional support or did your doctor say, it's also good to see a therapist through this process? You know, uh, he, he didn't say that. And I was not seeing a therapist at that point. But actually, kind of after, the, after everything, I started seeing a therapist because I was also in New York. The reason why we were back in New York, you know, we live here, but we were back in New York because I was in the middle of a career thing where I had a play. That, you know, you have to mention Meryl Streep. So Meryl Streep, lovingly enough, did a reading of a play of mine at the public theater. And her son, uh, Henry Wolf, who's a musician and an actor, he was in the play. And that's how that all happened. And also Grace Gummer did, was in the reading. And, and, and Deborah Monk. It was, it was a, and Pam McKinnon directed it. It was this amazing experience. So my play, I was with CAA. My play was optioned for Broadway. This is all happening. I'm going to Broadway, man. And um, we were in a three-year development thing. Uh, the, the Eric Falkenstein and Alan Marks and Barbara Marks were the... Uh, and Kevin Spiros was involved too, were the were the producers. And um, it died. It just died. Like the reason we moved to New York died. So I went to New York with my perfect penis to be this big Broadway playwright. And instead what I got was, wah, wah, you know, I got messed up penis and the play didn't happen. And I was hired to also write a screenplay and that didn't go into like, Things just were not happening. Mm. So then, so adding to my active misery was like bad penis, career failing it again, you know. So, and by then, like, I kind of, I was just like, this is just all too much. I couldn't find anything really kind of good about my situation. I had, I had Adam sort of, he was like being ambivalent in our relationship. I had my friends, but it's New York. Like people in LA are busy. New York's the same way. Did you have your dog yet? I didn't have my dog yet. So I was just, I was, um, and finally, I just had to go see Shrink. Yeah. There was just no, it was like, listen, I, I'm in a hole. Good for you. I'm though. in an That's absolute hole. So and, and we, yeah, and I've you know, been to therapy before because sure. I've had to. So, yeah. And, and interestingly, after all was said and done, the emotional issues, because everyone has their base emotional problem, mine turned out to be, you know, surprising the attention and stuff. Uh, you know, my deepest one was abandonment. That's my deepest thing. And so, and there it all came up like, in a way, it was a good lesson. Like the Broadway people were abandoning me. My husband, you know, my future husband was was abandoning me. Uh, my penis was abandoning. My body was abandoning me. Like everything wasn't staying with me. And we moved uh, from Midtown actually up toward up toward Fort Tryon Park, way northern Manhattan. Beautiful up there. Lots of plants and skunks and stuff. And we moved, and it was fun. It was a good move. It was a great apartment. I remember I was like walking around the little village up there, the little town up there, and I'm just like sobbing. And I don't want, and it's just like this, and I think the move did it, because moving can make, even though you, I was I was still in Manhattan, it was no big deal, it was just up the road, but there was something about this visceral, complete and utter abandonment, kind of like Tom Hanks in Big, when he's left in New York at, mm -hmm. at the, you know, when he's in a room and he's like terrified, I think my childhood whatever came uh. up, full-blown abandonment, and, but it was good, and that actually happened when I, I was in therapy for a few months, like, my therapist was good, and he sort of he just, you know, like therapists, a good one will do. The issue was forced. And I had to face this, like, monster abandonment that and I had in my psyche. healing almost from, like, a healing opportunity from all of this stuff coming up. Yeah, I really did. So that was the silver lining of the Peronis disease. It was, like, one of, it was the biggest one of, of all that was happening to me because I've dealt with so much rejection in the past anyway um, in, in many different varieties. Um, but, but the penis one was just... It was like outrageous. Mm. It was so you like, were able to yeah. start that healing process before you knew if you would be as healthy as you are. And um, I was because the doctor stuff got me back to about 75, 80 percent. That was around when I started seeing the therapist. So I was starting to transition into a better mood mm. a little bit about my penis anywhere or getting to some sort of acceptance enough to to want to take care of yourself too it, yeah. more so emotionally yeah. that's interesting yeah yeah i mean i mean i mean definitely i'm someone who when i've been in a dark time like when i was 19 years old i was in a really dark time because i was having a hard time dealing with my sexuality um and my career choices and stuff um i definitely am someone who, who has reached out i'm not one of these guys who's like oh, i could do it my own like i definitely know like oh man i I'm a pretty self-sufficient person, but when the when the going gets really rough, I'm definitely someone who's like, you know, basta. I can't do this. I, I someone's gotta 
<laughs> send the ambulance. You yeah, know what I mean, like, seriously. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, could I stop. had two therapists at once at one point. Yeah, see, I mean, it's like it's, it's so helpful. Yeah, I mean, because we're all. It's interesting the culture we live in, and yet how we are internally. The culture we live in is, and I don't think it's necessarily bad, but it's like really competitive. And and that forces people to be alone a lot in, in, in their psyche, you know. And yet what we all really need is to feel connection and love and warmth and safety. It's so essential for everyone. And like and like we don't have that normal. Like, like it's like it's like you go out into the world and people are not going to give that to you. It's so weird. It's such a weird situation. And then if you are too open, people are like, oh, you're needy. Look at that needy person. Oh, or TMI, too much information. And you have, you have to like really be careful right. how you interact with people because you don't want to push people away. Yeah, it's and still so, be true to yourself. You know, so, that's what I usually come back to is mm-hmm. any of those situations where am I being too much? Am I being not enough? Is I just yeah. am, am I being me? Well, and also too, isn't it weird? I was saying this the other day, like this whole thing that we're curating our own personalities. I mean, it's even worse with you know Instagram and social media and stuff. And that, well, whatever. That's like this digital weird thing that we're all doing. Um, you know, try to keep that as simple and honest as possible. But, but like we're still curating our personalities. Like, how am I coming off? What is this? And it. I don't know. I don't know if to use the word exhausting because it's not because we're also used to doing it. We're used to it, but like, wouldn't it be so sweet if you could just sort of go out there and just be who you are without Seriously. the without this self curation? I think it's better. I mean, I know that even just to be polite, we we may withhold certain things, and that's probably a good thing. Yeah, or, sure. Or I lie. I give myself permission now to lie for self safety. I prize honesty so much that I used to feel guilty telling, you know, someone who I feel threatened by a lie, you know, like I had Mm. to work through that. Like there's certain things that we do that are not, I feel like it's being true to ourselves in another way, Mm -hmm. but I feel Mm -hmm. like it's always a win to just, to actually truly be true to yourself because the people that you are being too much for, that's, go find other people. You know what I mean? Like, well, exactly. And I, I, you know, I had someone who once told me, um, you know, if you also don't stand up to people, you are training them to continue their behavior, right? So, yeah. you know, I remember there was this guy who, you know, uh, was kind of bullying. It was a, 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 the, the basic husband of, a, of an old friend of mine, and he was just very bullying politically. And, you know, it's not a political show, so we won't go into it, but he was definitely on the opposite side of me. And he was just bullying me and bullying me into, like, wanting to believe his point of view. And I was just like, you know, I'll make up a name, you know, Richard. It wasn't his name. Richard, listen. Uh, you know, I just don't think like that. So let's just drop it, you know? And he just, and then he, and also alcohol is all, he'd get, he'd get drunk and he'd start screaming. And I would tell him, and, and I thought it was, I had to send it to him and just say, listen, now I'm trapped in your weekend house. You're screaming at me. I feel bullied. It's really scary. And I don't want this. So you either stop this or I can't hang out with you. Mm-hmm. And then, and then he heard it, you know, and then we saw this particular couple one more time and, and, um, he started out again at a restaurant in Manhattan. And I was just like, oh, I'm done. Yeah. I'm done. It's like, because at least if you stand up and tell your truth. Yes. Because right now, you know, ghosting is so, you know, pre- mm-hmm. prevalent. And yep. I don't believe in ghosting. I think ghosting is really cowardly, you know, mm-hmm. I think, unless it's like a third tier person, yeah, whatever. It's yeah, a, or someone's being rude. But or someone something. who's like really in your life. Yeah. And you're really having a problem. And, he, and, and I include like spouses of, best pals, you know, because they're in your life because by force, you know, by I, I think you got to say something and at least you have integrity and they can decide and maybe I mean, maybe no one else has said it to them before, mm-hmm. especially with bullies. Bullies are weird because they they really think that they can get their way because it, it does bullying does work. Actually works for a lot of people. And then like if they run up against, you know, kind of come against someone where it's not going to yeah. work. Well, when you good. stop feeding <laughs> feeding the monster, it won't come to you for food. Like, exactly right. You know? Yeah. 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 So it so- sounds like you've come so far, and it's evident mm-hmm. in your book, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't end with, like, this shiny little bow of, like, life's perfect now. Oh, God, no, no. Um, no. It's very authentic. It, it feels that way. You're in a much better place now, though. Yeah. With, with all of this, um, would you speak to the rewards of this whole journey, in addition to the emotional benefits that you just talked about, mm-hmm. treatment-wise and Peroni's disease-wise? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I guess I'll just be really specific about it. Um, uh, my penis bent to the right and then to the left and then curved upward. It kept changing shape. And and this is kind of often happens with uh, with, with Peroni's disease. Um, 
My penis is now uh, almost straight. Uh, it curves a teeny bit upward now toward my stomach when it's erect, but a lot of penises do that, so it's no big deal. It doesn't look abnormal. Um, it works really well. I would say I don't know that it's any shorter because, right, the the, the because it's slightly curved. I guess if you'd measure it, it seems a little shorter because it's curved, but it's probably around six inches still. Maybe it's five and three quarters, you know? I love that you don't know specifically because that shows that you're not like measuring and well i guess sure. I, I guess i would have to take the tape that you know the, the the tape measure thing and like bring it exactly the length of the penis as it curves a little right um but really no the curve is not bad it's a little bit up toward my belly um it's my penis is almost back to its original thickness because the other thing about peronis disease is you get constriction so your your penis will be will, will become less thick it kind of thins out which girth. is a bummer yeah you lose girth there you go girth um, so that's, I would say that's at 97%. I mean, that really came back. And I really, and actually, interestingly, the, the andropenis, the penis stretcher, it doesn't only stretch, it actually ends up by the tension of stretching, giving you girth again. And they talk about that. So that's really good. Um, so that's back. Uh, sexual function, you know, you can lose some sexual function from this. Basically, I'm fine. I do not need even to take Viagra or anything like that. If we're just, you know doing basically oral or hands sex. But when it does come time, if I want to be the top and I really want to, you know, do some insertion, it's just, I take 10 milligrams of Viagra and there is this like, no question, it works beautifully. And I'm in my 50s. Lots of guys in 50s are popping 10 milligrams of Viagra. Pop it, go. And about 40 minutes after it's ready and it, you know, it's working. It's working great. So I, I'm, so physically, it all works. Um, and frankly, if I had not had Peroni's disease, I remember even before Peroni's disease, I was like, eh, my erections aren't as good as they were. I could be in this position now anyway. So, yeah. you know, taking the Viagra in order for me to be a top guy again. Sure, yeah, yeah. sure. So oh, I'm okay. so happy for you. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's really wonderful. Uh, before I let you go, I have to ask yeah. you a little bit more about your book specifically. Mm-hmm. The decision to write it, you talk about you'd approached a doctor about possibly doing an article mm-hmm. turned into a book. Yeah. Would you share why you decided to go long form and write this book? Yeah, okay. So I originally wanted to write like a 40-page monograph, like a Kindle single, you know, and just have just be very clinical about it. Like, do this, do this, do this, do this. Here, here's, you know, I'll be not that dry, but um, as almost like a public service announcement. I thought, I had good results. Let me help others. That was my whole intention to help others. And I have a lot of, I have a group of writer friends. We all read each other's stuff. And they were saying, wow, this paragraph about you and Adam, like, that's the most interesting part. Oh, wow. When you talked about, you know, when you were younger. So the human element became what people were much more interested in. Oh, it's so compelling because you took us on a journey. It's not just a, it's not a medical text, Mm -hmm. which would be good if you just needed a flyer, but people can Mm -hmm. Google that stuff. This takes somebody through a journey of the emotional experience. Yeah. And I, and I blame, uh, I blame Marion Fontana, Blair Fell and Louise Crawford. These are people who are, you know, who really pushed me, uh, Kim Merrill. I mean, they were just like, they were just like, oh, this is the best part. And I was like, oh, damn, you people. Now I have to write a whole book? Okay. But it, it was so enjoyable. And it was so, it was a cathartic experience and, and an empowering experience, to be so honest. You know? So I, I, was, I, felt, I felt happy to do it. And did you know the title before? Because you write the phrase bent but not broken mm-hmm. in the text. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you have that in mind as a title already? It's funny about titles. Uh, no, I did. at first I didn't, but it came to me pretty quickly. It came to me like I was probably like, once it became a memoir as opposed to just like a, you know, How to Fix Your Pronies Disease, the title came to me like just in a flash one afternoon. I can't remember the moment, but it was early on and I had the title. I'm actually, I'm actually kind of okay. Titles kind of arrived to me. Um, and I love titles. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and believe me, that's not the only book on earth that's called Bent But Not Broken. There, there are other books out there called that. Um, uh, but, you know, you can't copyright titles. So, um, yeah. But I, I, I like the And title. the cover is very cool. Yeah. Uh, Chip Kidd did the cover. Now, Chip Kidd, if, for those who don't know, I mean, he does um, all of David Sedaris's covers. He's done Augustine Burroughs' covers. He's done, a, he's done a lot of covers. He's done Rick Whitaker's cover. Um, he also did the cover for Jurassic Park. So that dinosaur on the cover of the book, that actually became the dinosaur up on the billboards for the movie. So he designed the Jurassic Park dinosaur. And he's just an amazing, you know, he is the premier 
you know, book cover designer on, on you know, Earth, on, on the United States, maybe on Earth. And uh, he's just such a great guy. And I just asked him if he'd do it. And, awesome. and it was like kind of a ballsy move. I was like, hey, Chip, let me do my <laughs> cover. And, uh, and you know, we publish our money, blah, 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 you know, but any event, um, yeah, it totally came came through. Oh, and, and, and he, yeah, he was great. He was great. I was so pleased. That's mm. awesome. Well, congratulations again. Yeah. What's the one big thing that you want people to take away from the book? Oh, sure. Um, Stay honest, stay sexy, and stay healthy. That's mm. those three things. Honesty, be sexy. You're whatever, however sexy you are, be that sexy, and and stay as healthy as you can stay. You know, it's really and and I and I do think that honesty is the first one, because I think you have to be honest about yourself, about everyone else, in order to be sexy and to be healthy. So that's what I would say. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank yeah. you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It was really wonderful. Thank you. Learn more about Bent But Not Broken at doncummings.net or pick it up most anywhere books are sold. And if you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, please subscribe on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or iHeartRadio or Spotify. And I hope you will also leave us a simple review and a rating. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. Girl Boner Radio is owned, operated, and executively produced by me, August McLaughlin with technical producer and audio extraordinaire Mackenzie Mazel as part of the Period Podcast Network, an affiliate of Starburns Industries. Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast brand movement and book series at girlboner.org and more about Period at periodnetwork.com.